You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. You ever thought to yourself, I got to grow my practice. I got to find a better way to connect with these patients and have a little bit more fun at work. Well, if you've ever thought that, today I'm going to bring on a man who wrote a great book called Treating People, Not Patients. A great friend of mine from way back, Dr. Michael Sonic. You have to read his book. And today we talk about what's in the book and how it can be a huge advantage to helping you connect better with the patients you see every day. So please listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. We'll see you guys soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. You know the jam here. I get to hang out with the coolest people in dentistry. Some of them are my friends and they get to share great wisdom so that you guys can create a better practice and a better life. And I have an old friend of mine that we're bringing on today, Dr. Michael Sonic, and we've known each other for quite a long time. It's the first time I've had him on the podcast. And so I had to stalk him because he's a busy guy and get him on the podcast. And he's written a new book. It's a great new book, Treating People, Not Patients. And we're going to learn about how to create a successful practice and really transformational insights on how you can better connect with human beings. Mike, thanks for being on, brother. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You and I have known each other for a long time. We, uh, yeah. I, a long time. So, <laughs> but, uh, today we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff and, and you're in a really unique place right now, um, with your educational, you know, uh, platform and what you're doing. I want people to know, cause we have a lot of young listeners. I've got a lot of dental students. Who's Dr. Michael Sonic. What do you do? Let's start there first. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm a periodontist and I've been a periodontist. Uh, I graduated from dental school a long time ago, 1979. So I've been doing dentistry for over 40 years. And then I did my periodontal residency down at Emory University and I uh, went to practice. I work with Dennis Tarnow as an educator, 1984 at NYU. And I've been at NYU since 1984, teaching and continuing education department there. A large part of my practice has been in education, which is interesting because my, when I talk to patients, it's all about, it's all, it's all about education. So, but I'm, I'm known as a clinician because I, um, 
worked real hard at becoming a good surgeon. You know, I've written, you know, I've written many articles. I have a textbook on bone regeneration on implant site development that's used in residency programs for bone grafting. I've written four or five books, you know, on various forms of surgery. And people say, hey, you're a good surgeon. Let me learn about that. And I do teach that. And I've been teaching that for 40 years. But my true passion has always been my passion is treating people. And yeah. hence the title of the book, Treating People, Not Patients. So I'm a clinician. But most dentists, we're not taught how to treat people in dental school. It's what are we taught? We're taught how to do crown lengthening, extractions, orthodontics, veneers, bonding. We even have requirements. You have to do 30 of this restoration. I, I had to make four dentures. I had to do six periodontal surgeries. I didn't have to be nice to anybody. I wasn't taught how to be nice to any of the people in our in in, in my practice. I didn't have I didn't teach they weren't they didn't teach us integrity. They didn't teach us transformational you know powers over patients. They didn't teach us neurolinguistic programming. They didn't teach us the most important thing that we can do for a patient, and that's to make them feel safe and comfortable in our environment. We we're talking about Todd Williams earlier, the, the lecturer, and mm -hmm. what he does. He's, he works at the Four Seasons. Now, if you stay at a Four Seasons hotel, you have nice you have nice sheets at home. You have good food at home. Let's say you spend you know fifteen thousand dollars a night for the great suite at a hotel. For fifteen thousand dollars, I I don't need a bed. I mean, I can get a bed for like a couple hundred bucks. I have a bed at home. Matter of fact, I have four beds at my home. I can sleep at any of them. But why do I spend four fifteen thousand dollars at a Four Seasons? And when Todd in his lecture he talks about it, he says the people that spend that kind of money have better sheets at home. They get better food at home. They have a better TV at home. They have a better sound system at home. They probably live in a nicer neighborhood. So why are they there? He says they're there because they want the Four Seasons clientele to take away the absence of worry. They don't want to be worried about anything. They just want to relax. And when a patient comes into a dental, um, a dental office, it's not the Four Seasons Hotel. They come into our office and we're not giving them a great experience. We're giving them anesthetic. We're jabbing them. We have more knowledge than they do. We make them feel inferior. They already feel terrible because their mouth's in bad shape. They feel guilty. They come in with so much baggage and preconceived notions of what they're gonna, what's going to happen to them when, when they're in our office. So the first thing that I need to know about that patient is what are they worried about? And let me take that away immediately. And I try to find that out. And we can talk about what those things are and how we go about doing it. Yeah, So I absolutely do. Now, this is really important because you're speaking my jam. Dentists aren't taught a lot of these things. And you're a busy guy. What, like, why were you motivated to write yeah, this book? Question. You know, I, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I didn't, didn't grow up rich as most dentists that are my age are. Most of us, you know, grew up in blue collar families and we, you know, we wanted to better ourselves. You know, today, as we talked about earlier, a lot of dentists come from, you know, their our parents are dentists. So they grew up pretty comfortable uh, because it's so expensive to get through dental school. So it's, it's a little bit different the students today than it were when I was there. Well, we were sort of idealistic and most of us worked hard. So as a kid, I had to work and um, I worked for my dad. He had a furniture store. You know, I did a lot of manual work on that. But I also, for whatever reason, I got, I was a lifeguard and I, I liked taking care of the people on the beach, you know, when I had wounds and got cut and things. But then somehow I got attracted to the restaurant industry and I started waiting on tables. And I stopped lifeguarding in the summer. I said, you know, I'm going to go to Kennebunkport. So I went up to Kennebunkport, Maine. Uh, right down the street from where George Bush's was. And I was at the Shawmut Inn and I started waiting on tables. And one of these guys, his name was Bart, that I worked with, he had like a handlebar mustache. You know, now I got it. I was 20 years old. This guy was like 22 with a handlebar mustache. He wore a vest. He had a little corkscrew, you know, in his belt so he could open up wine. 
for me, a good wine back there was Matus or Boone's Farm. <laughs> I didn't even, I mean, it was a turn. I didn't even know how to open up a court. So I started watching this guy give hospitality and he was into it. And so I started to mirror him and I started to do some of the things. And then I went on to bartend. I played cocktail piano. I worked in the kitchen and I just loved hospitality. I just loved working in the restaurant business. Now I'm a bit of a foodie, whatever that means. I mean, most of us are today. We all like good food. Whenever I go into a restaurant, I, I check it out. And for me, the restaurant became the model for running a good dental practice, except the restaurant's a little different. They don't serve dentistry. They serve food. But the three things that Zagat's, you remember Zagat's? Or yeah, Zagat's absolutely. The, they were bought, I think, by Google. They're not much around anymore. But what it was two people called Nina and Tim Zagat. They were at Yale University as uh, students, and they loved to eat. And so as they started to go out and motivate other people to eat at their restaurants, they would, they would send out little tickets. And they go, hey, what do you think of this restaurant? And he goes, if you give us a review, we'll put you in this little book. And then they started selling the books. So basically, they took what people were doing, writing up rest reviews, putting them in a book, and then selling the books. And what they did is they distilled the way they reviewed a restaurant down to three things. The food, the service, and the decor. And... I opened up my practice. I got out of school in 79 that I did a residency and I bounced around. I worked in other offices, but I opened up my practice pretty much in January of 1985. The same year that Danny Meyer opened up his restaurant in New York, which was um, Union Square Cafe. The same year Centro Restaurant opened up, which is next door to me, still open. In the same year that Pasta Nostra opened up by Joe Bruno, which just closed last week. Norwalk. Those are my three favorite restaurants. Mm -hmm. And they happen to be open up the same time, which was just a coincidence. So I started to look at these successful restaurants and what they did. And I noticed that when I walked into those restaurants, I felt good. Now, the food was good and the decor was really nice, but the service was really special. They made me feel really good. And the worst thing to do is to feel bad when you're when you're paying somebody you know, for food, you know, because I can cook. Most people can cook. We can go at home. We can get prepared foods. But when you're in a restaurant, you want it to look nice. And so I started to look at successful businesses, not just restaurants, any business, your business, for example. You know, when I when I email you, guess what? You email me back. That doesn't happen in most businesses. Matter of fact, only about 2% of the businesses are responsive like you are. And it's, and it's reflective in your success because you're there helping people. So what I'm talking about, that you could have written this book because this book is all about connecting with other humans. And you've been to my study club twice and not many people get invited back, especially on a quote, <laughs> soft subject about being nice to people. This is the subject of my book. But you came into my the group of my dentists. We had about 30, 35 dentists, but there was no team there. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, well, these dentists are not going to bring back what Kurt talked to them to their offices. They're just going to sit there and they go, oh, that was really good. We should do this. And that's it. So I had you back. I had 400 people there yeah. to listen to you with their entire teams. Now, that is more impactful because it's all really about, about the team. So how did I get involved in this? It just happened organically. I didn't open up my practice thinking that I'm going to do this. You know, my mom was a decorator. My dad was in the furniture business. My dad was also an engineer. So I had an analytical mind, but I just always liked things to be organized. And I think there are certain things that are, you know, God-given and there are certain things that we learn. So my God-given talent is probably organization, you know, and common sense. I just like to organize things. I wasn't given great hands. Now, I'm known as a dentist that does good surgery, but I wasn't that guy that just picked up a block of wax and could carve a tooth in 15 minutes. I had to work really hard to get good hands, you know? I was the overachiever. I was pretty much an overachiever as a surgeon, but 
But the human connection piece, I don't know. I just, I had that early on. I always used to look around. I was quiet as a kid. I was president of my school, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at the cool table. I was at every table. I just like to, I love, I love to watch people and see how they work. And, you know, I'd like to get to know them and figure them out. That's probably my secret skill is I sort of know what you're thinking before you even know you're thinking it because I pay attention, but I practice that. It's not something that's natural over and over again. So with patience, if I'm talking too much, just let me know. Just no, stop. that's great. Okay. okay. With patience, when patients come in to see me, I got to read them quickly, right? How much time do we have? It's like a, it's a blink, you know, right. Malcolm Gladwell talks about that. He wrote a book called Blink. You see someone immediately, you know, if you like them. Now you say I have a good memory. We were talking. You say you have a good memory for you. You well, do. Why do I have a good memory for you? Because you made an impact upon me. You made that first impression. I know exactly what you said to me the first thing. You go, how are you doing? And, I'm, and I turned to you and I said, because you're from the Midwest and I'm from the Northeast. I go, what do you mean? How are you doing? I go, I want to know how you're doing. I go, are you really serious? Want to know how I'm doing? I don't know if you remember that. And then I realized after getting to know you, that's just who you are. You yeah. have an interest in people. Yeah. It doesn't really matter who they are. You know, and that's that's important. You can't treat someone well just because you think they're worthy of being treated well. Right. That, that's one of the things that have you ever been to a meeting Kirk, and you're there and you're talking to someone. They don't know who you are. and You're talking to someone and um, then all of a sudden they see somebody more important than you. You know, they see George Bush behind you. OK, I don't want to get political or Arnold Schwarzenegger. They see him. They go, let me talk to Arnold. But the greats don't do that. Right. Now, Dennis Tarnell is a good friend of mine. And then most of your visitors, uh, your viewers probably know who he is. And he was my mentor. And I remember talking to Dennis at a meeting. And this was early, you know, early on in my career. And they were talking one on one. And I was not well known at the time. But well known people would walk by and try to interrupt the conversation. Dennis never veered. He didn't talk to anybody that was more important than me. I was just, you know, out of school a few years. But he still spent the time talking to me. And I always remember that about him. I never said that to him. But I think I will. I'll mention that to him. I have six pages about Dennis Tarnow in my book and how yeah. he became a great teacher and how he mentored me. That's incredible. So, You've had a great. Now, let me ask you a question because I love yeah. this topic and we're going to talk about the book. But let's say I'm a dentist, dentist listening. You yeah. know, Mike, it's very easy to do the technical education path. Technical is easy. You know, it's sexy. It's exciting. Yeah. And if you're a young, you know, entrepreneur wannabe in this whole process, how important is, are the soft skills you're talking about? Like if you could go back in a time machine and give yourself, you know, some advice, what would you say to a 32 year old younger self? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I have made a lot of mistakes in my life. Okay. <laughs> in every areas, but for some reason I had early on, I did not have any true mentors in the soft skills They weren't there. And, but I always liked them. So what's, what's the question? Why don't I answer your question instead of rifting again? Yeah. So the, well, just, you know, the, the natural path of any dentist listening yeah. is like, Dr. Sonic, I understand what you're saying. This is important. But you know what? There's an implant course coming up. You know, technical right. education is an easier path. And I've always been taught, you know, you hear this all the time, just be a great dentist and everything will take care of itself. Well, that isn't always true. You know, you have to learn how to run a business, have the soft skills and know how to treat people. And, you know, you also see the other side of it. We see some not so great dentists that were amazing human beings and they threw the keggers in dental school and they created successful practices. Now, I'm not supporting that and saying that's the direction you need to go, but you got to have a healthy balance of soft skills yeah. and technical skills, right? Yeah. So if you I guess go back to the restaurant, I mean, there are plenty of restaurants that are beautiful, 
and they have good service, but if the food isn't very good, you're not going back. Right. So same with a dentist. You have to have a minimal level of skills. Now, most of the skills that we have that are, you know, dent- patients really can't assess them. It's hard to find a good dentist. <clears throat> There's a great physician in my town, went to Yale, Harvard Medical School. He's brilliant. Got a photographic memory. He recommends a terrible dentist. Why? Right? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. And I, one of my patients said, I go, why are you seeing this? I said, to him, why are you seeing this? Dad? He's a nice guy, but he's, he, you know, I give him a C. And, but this physician is an A plus. It's impossible to replace it. I, but he was referred there by that physician. So it's hard for patients to assess our clinical skills, unless it's a single front tooth, or maybe, maybe even ortho, orthodontist. If the front six teeth are lined, they don't know about the occlusion. You know, how do they assess this? Were they nice? Did it hurt? What was the price? You know, that those are easy ways to, to assess. But it really doesn't really talk about the clinical skills. So let me get back to your question. If you don't have the soft skills, and what the soft skills are, the ability to relate to other human beings, to get them to trust you, because it's really all about trust. If they don't get, you don't get people to trust you, they're not going to buy from you. And we're in a sales business. And I don't think that's a dirty word anymore because we are sales. We're professionals. Professionals means, what's the definition of professional? Someone who sells a skill. Right. You know, and we, you know, that they talk about professions. What's the oldest living profession? They talk about that. Someone's selling something, right? And we as dentists, our skills, we have unique skills. Very few people have the skill. We have 350 million people in the country, and we maybe have 160,000 dentists. I don't know if that's right, but something like that. There aren't too many dentists in the country that have gone through the skills. So we have struggled. And everything that we did to become a dentist has nothing to do with soft skills. First of all, you had to get good grades in high school. Then you had to get good board scores. Then you had to join clubs. Then you had to interview well. And then you have to do well in your SATs. And then you had to do well in dental school. But that doesn't really make you a good dentist. The process to become a, a dentist has nothing to do with being a good dentist, unfortunately. So it's important to have those skills, but you have to know how to relate to other human beings and to make them feel comfortable. And how do you teach that? That is probably the hardest thing that I have to teach. Yeah. You know, I, I give a course on suturing and flap design. First of all, very few people know how to suture and they flap. But I can show them. I go, this suture is this size. This is this is dissolvable. This one is not. I can show them all those things and it becomes clear. Now, the thing about education, which is sort of tricky, is most people don't remember very much about what, what, what you taught. And I think the number is probably 5%. That's probably less than that. But 5% is what people remember. I, have, I, I remember a few things from your course, which is amazing. I remember <laughs> that from your course. And then you're blown away. That I remember it eight years later. But you made an impact upon me because you were speaking a language that I was attracted to. You were being a human being that I was attracted to. And I hope that as a man, this doesn't bother you. But I was no. attracted to your message. Okay, And it was a great message. And that's why I brought you back. And um, and, I, and then when we, you and I talk, we have so many things in common where we're attracted to the same thing. Most dentists aren't attracted to this. Most dentists went into dentistry because they like to work with their hands, because their parents were a dentist, because they were good at school, because they were not given a choice of doing anything but being a professional. You know, in my own case, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a piano player and an actor. So my mom says, yeah, you'll be real successful playing in Manhattan Savings Bank on 86th and 3rd Avenue at noon for the retired women with blue hair. Mm-hmm. That was what my mom said. And I think about my mom every day because she's right, because they're great pianists in those hotel rooms and lobbies. I walk into a great hotel in any city, you know, it's in Vegas, you're in Bellagio, someone's playing a piano, nobody's listening to them, but they're phenomenal. Right. And that's where I, where, where I would have ended up. Nobody listening to me if I was successful as a piano player. 
So I became a dentist because I was told I don't have two choices, doctor or lawyer. You know, mm-hmm. that was it. You know, my father joked because you can work in the furniture business and repair <laughs> furniture all day long. So what did I do? I made it. I made it my own. I made right. it my own by creating teaching education where I can be in front of people and talking to people. And I created an environment that was pretty cool. I love going to work every day. Yeah. I can't say when, when a dentist calls me up and say, Hey, Mike, got a great case. I don't think, I don't, I don't think about that. It's a great case. Oh, we're going to make a lot of money. We're going to take out a lot of teeth. We're going to do a lot of bone graft. That doesn't excite me. What excites me is transforming that patient. So I think what's important for the younger people is writing down a mission statement and figuring out where they want to go with their lives. Do you just want to do crowns all day long and make a lot of money? You can do that. Then maybe you don't want to build your own private practice because you're going to have to have somebody to help you. Right. And I've worked with many dentists. I've had you know four or five partners over the course of my career. And most of the partners I've worked with don't really have that vision. They're great dentists and they're really smart. And I said, you know, you have to, I, I, I try to encourage them to have that, but they don't feel it. So can it be taught, which is an important thing. And I do think it can be. You can develop an interest in this because a lot of people feel that this is for somebody else. Once people understand the message that's in my book uh, that I wrote during COVID, but I've been practicing for 35 years, you're going to start to see something in there saying, you know, I can make this a little bit better. You know, no one's going to be me. You know, no one's anybody. I, I'm the only one that's going to be me. You're the only one that's going to be you. The people who are listening, you're, you're all unique in your own way. But there are certain skills that you can use to ameliorate the way you're practicing to get more patients to say yes to the treatment that you want to provide. Yeah. And you know what's the nice thing about this? There's two things that I like. One is it decreases your stress level because it becomes a lot more fun. And I think that's what you teach. You want to have more fun at work because you, you, you know, you teach soft and hard skills. You want to have more fun at work because everything becomes systemized and you become a lot more efficient. Right. I don't have too many patient complaints, you know, because I handle them immediately and I, and I know what they're going to complain about. So I don't want to go there, you know? So if it's going to be about money, we could talk about how do you manage complaints? That could be another podcast. Cause I love that one. For sure. I love dealing with a frontal patient. That's, that's one of my favorites. Um, because, because everybody always say, Oh, what a bad patient. They go, no, you're the, you're the problem, not the patient. <laughs> okay. Cause the solutions in you, not the patient. Yeah. Now go so, back to I this, Mike. Yeah. So like, I love the, I love books. I, I grew up on books in dentistry. Um, and so treating people, not patients, like what do you know, I want people to read your book. And if, if I was going to read, if I'm a young dentist reading this book, what do you, what do you hope I take away from your book? Well, I hope that you take away from the book the reason why you went to practice in the first place, and that's to help other people. And I think in the book, there is a number, it's it's 10 chapters, and each chapter has about 15 to 20 questions that you can use as a workbook. And what you'll take away from the book is the importance of being there for patient, the importance of making a patient feel safe, the importance of creating a comfortable environment for the decor, because people look at everything. Right. As simple as fingernails. I mean, do you have a written policy of what the fingernail should look like? I mean, I don't want to t- talk to one of my female assistants and say, hey, you know, you shouldn't have those long pointy fingernails, but I can say that to them before I hire them. So there's, a, there's an expectation. So I think it's also very important to create the team because you have a team. You know, you and I have actually the same size teams. I have 22 people in my office. You have about the same in, in, your, in your practice. So in my office, everybody, I don't get to see every patient. I don't get to have every interaction. I don't know how many interactions there are a day. I'd say there's probably between about seven or 8,000 8, interactions in my office a day between phone calls, emails, patients coming and going. Those are seven or 8,000 opportunities for things to go wrong. So that whole team has to have the same philosophy built in. So how do you create that team philosophy? And I specifically 
show people how to create that in the book and the importance of mentorship, the edu educational process. You know, I have many mentors. You know, I spend a lot of money every year taking courses and still going. Not so much on suturing, but on other things that are related to the practice. And how to build that, that servant-hearted team that gives every patient a wow experience. I want everybody to leave my practice saying, great, that was great. You know, we have over 3,000 five-star reviews online. I mean, I don't ask for the reviews. They just they just put them up there. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, nice to, it's nice to see. Not a day goes by in my practice where at least four or five people say, how did you get such a great team? Yeah. Now go back yeah. to that. Because I want to know that the answer to that question, you know, as best we can in a podcast. Yeah. You still do the hiring in your practice. So yeah. give us some philosophy. Like, first sure. of all, you hear this from dentists all the time. There's no great people out there. Do you ever hear that one? You know, and hiring no. is hard. You never heard that. You yeah. still do the hiring in your practice. How have you right. done this? Give us some, give us some insight. Well, I have a chapter in the book on how to hire. I also have a video on how to hire. And so it makes it very, very easy. Uh, there's a process that we go through. It's a four, I have four pages of written, how do we hire? So the first thing is we craft an ad and we put the ad up and we have Indeed and Mary and other places. And then the ad, uh, it, the ad's fairly generic, but it's very upbeat and written positively. Once someone responds to the ad, we send them what's called a culture index. I'll explain that in a second. And, 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 and an application for employment. We already have their resume because that's there. So I have the resume, I have their application for employment, which has just basic information, salary, where they live, et cetera. And then we have the culture index. And once I get that information back, my team reviews it. I don't see any of it at this time. If the team thinks they're relatively good, they send them to me and then I review it. So I review perhaps 10 to 20 resumes and culture indices a week. You may think that may take me a long time, but it doesn't. It takes me about four or five minutes. So four or five minutes every week, I will review them. If I like them, then I will talk to my senior person that does the hiring. I say, do a FaceTime interview. And they have a series of 25, 30 questions they can ask. During that interview, we know, are they clean? Do they show up, et cetera? First of all, do they show up on time? Right. I'd say once we give somebody an interview, 70% don't even show up for the Zoom call. Really? And then. Yeah, and 30% of them that show up are having technical problems, and then they're talking to their kids, and they don't know where we are. So we ask them very simple things like, where's our office? Have you been to our website? What do we do? So you get to see if they're interested. If they pass that, then we have them in for a what I call a blink interview. They come in, and then I get to see how they're dressed. Do they stand up and greet me? Do they shake my hand? Do they look me in the eyes? And then I look at six things. I look at their hair. I look at their eyes. I look at their teeth. I look at their clothes, I look at their fingernails and their shoes. And, it's, and you can assess someone's cleanliness very quickly. If they are not showing their best self on the day of an interview, they're not going to come to work on time and, and, and neat and clean. So, and then if I like them, then we have them in for a half day, you know, working interview. So, and then my team, at that point, I'm done. My team hires them. If they like them, they hire them. If they don't, and they'll tell me very quickly. So how hard is it to get a job in our office? It's very hard. <laughs> We are looking for four people. We're, we hire about one person every nine to 12 months, and we're always looking for four people. And out of everybody who applies, I probably interview <clears throat> two out of 100. So by the time they get there, and I tell them that, I go, you know, you've made it here. 98 people didn't make it to this room. And then most of those people don't make it either. So we hire very slow. One of the things we use <clears throat> is called Culture Index. You can Google it if you want. It's the most impactful tool 
for human behavior that I found, and you use it as well. We all know about the disc, which is about 40 to 50% accurate. And there are a lot of other things like Strength Finder and Colby Index and his Culture Index. It's a personality assessment, and it looks at seven different traits. And it takes about five minutes to fill out. If any of your viewers want it, just email me. I'll send them one, and I'll tell them what they're like in about two seconds. It, it shows me how autonomous they are. Are they going to tell me what to do, or are they going to take orders? You know. And so I'm, I'm not going to want a really bossy dental assistant, but if they're in the front desk working with I'm going to want them to be a little bit more autonomous. You can tell me how social they are. Are they going to talk all day, or are they going to be quiet? So for a dental assistant, I want them to be somewhat social because they're with the patient. I want to know how detailed they are. For my dental assistant, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's that's not something that is subject to debate. They have to be detailed. I can't ha have them handle me a scalpel when I ask for anesthetic. You know, right. they have to remember that. And then it look looks at how logical they are. People who are not logical will anger very quickly. I don't want those people in the office. Both of my partners are on the ultimate extreme of logic, as I am. So my partners, I have two of them. We never fight. We talk. We could disagree, but we never fight. And it shows me how creative they are. And it shows me how much energy they have. So ideally, I want a Ritz-Carlton concierge for my dental assistant. I want them friendly, efficient, you know, get things done, okay? And then they're going to do what I ask them to do, and they're going to be really pleasant about it. It's almost like they print them. Now, you probably know Salvin Dental, you know, the equipment. Yeah, company. yeah. You know, I always say to Bob Salvin, I go, where do you get these people? Do you, like, have a copier down in North Carolina <laughs> and just print these people out? Because they all look like they all look like uh, soap opera stars that are really nice, and they're very efficient, and they, they're great. And he knew how to hire. I don't know if he uses the culture index or not, but that that is my secret weapon. And, um, you know, if I get somebody's culture index, they know exactly who they are. You know, and I, my wife and I, we, I mean, every family member has, has they, they wouldn't film out, but I made all my family members film out. So I know whenever I see the behavior, well, their culture index says that they have a hard time making a decision. So they're having a hard time making a decision. So I don't get bad. I, I don't get upset with people for being who they are. And the culture index also shows us not who they are, but who they're being in their job. So what's cool is if someone comes in and they have a great culture index, but their job culture index shows them not, not happy, I tell them, I go, oh, you're not happy at your job because you're forced to be, you know, not so social and you have to be told to do something that you don't really want to do and you're not very detailed and you got to be make up for the creativity of your bosses because they don't have any. They go, how'd you know that? I go, I looked at your seven dots. And it's pretty cool. So that's wow. something that I love. And again, it's culture index with Michael Hall is my teacher. He he's part owner of the company, so he's been great. And he's brilliant. Now go back to this. You said you're always hiring for people. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got 22 people. I mean, right. people get sick. Uh, people. I mean, there's there's turnover in a practice. Now right. I don't know. How, you probably know better than I do. What? How long does the average employee stay today? You know, everybody has different statistics on this, but my real thinking is, I think this is where you're going. I believe every company has to have a bench, you know, right. a farm team that you're looking right. for. You can't just react when you lose somebody. Is that what you're right. pointing to? Yeah, that's one of the points, but there is turnover because right. people get married. People have babies. People leave for nine months. Uh, people have carpal tunnel. You know, th things happen. I lost two of the best assistants I've ever had to the military because their husbands were restationed. So um, I so we're always looking. The bench is really important. I always want to be overstaffed, not understaffed. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes I'll see one of my office managers will look and go, they're, they're standing, they're standing around. I go, I don't care. I don't care if they're standing around. We're getting the job done. We're meeting our production quotas. Everything is organized. If they want to stand around now, 
that's fine with me because in about two hours, they're going to be killing themselves, you know, right. so they can, they can do that. So I give my staff a tremendous amount of autonomy, but it is important to be overstaffed and to have that bench because you need it, right? You know, Aaron Rodgers, he's no longer the quarterback, right? Right. You need the back. Yeah, so that's my one sports <laughs> reference. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast in itself. Now, the other thing too, you're a big fan of fee-for-service dentistry. You know, a big challenge in the world right now is how fast PPOs are growing. And I think what you're pointing to in this book, when you start treating people, not patients, you start to move to another place in dentistry where you're you're actually, you know, you're charging out for your time, your expertise, not for the actual crown or tooth procedure itself, correct? Yeah, that well, that's spot on. Um, one of the things that I talk about are, are we procedurists or are we doctors? Right. You know? And part of my training, and I could talk to you about this another time because it's sort of a long story, but part of my training was my first day at dental school, Harold Lowe, who's a, who's a, who's a periodontist that passed away. He's a father of modern periodontology. He says, you are now physicians of the oral cavity, you're doctors. And even though we were freshmen in dental school, they called us doctor. You know, and that was very different. 1975, you know, at, at Georgetown University, they were dumping an alginate on your head if you did, if you did a bad impression. And so there was a tremendous amount of respect. He says, but you have to treat the whole body. And so my philosophy from dental school is that we're physicians of the oral cavity and I have to treat people coming out. I had to do what was necessary. We had to treat the infection first. We had to get them paranormally healthy before we do a crown. And that's another whole topic is, is, the, is what's going on with periodontal disease. There's so much undiagnosed periodontal disease. Probably 97% of it's undiagnosed in the United States. And that may be a made up number, but if you look at the insurance, not much is going to insurance, and you know half the population has some form of periodontal disease, if not greater, over sixty. So, I think you know it's scary not to do be a fee for service practice. And so when I opened up, I opened up cold in 1985. I had a white box. I had 800 square feet. It was it was there was nothing, no walls. I built the walls. I chalked the floor. I did everything for it. That was my training working for my dad and. My first year in practice in 1985, guess what my production was? I don't know. What, take a I guess. guess. I don't know. 300,000? 400,000? Yeah. Yeah. 300,000. One tenth of that. 35,000. So I produced 35,000. In a year? In a year. Wow. My first year. My first month, I took in $20. I And I have my appointment book. It's in pencil. Right. I, I bring it out to, and I show people when they come, they feel bad. I go, this is my first year in practice. Second year, I did 90,000. Third year, I did 135. My growth was slow. So, and I never took insurance. So what did I do? I worked in a mall mm-hmm. <laughs> in another state. So Mike Montanero, an orthodontist, says, don't practice in a mall in town because that was a dirty name back then doing you know PPOs. So I worked in White Plains, New York, in a gallery of mall. And I worked in Springfield, Massachusetts at the end of, at the mall of Holyside. And I worked and I lived in Connecticut. So I had my own private practice with no patients. And I, and I supported it by working in two malls. And I went down to NYU and started teaching. And that's where I met Dennis Tarnell and all the other luminaries from NYU. So it was a really good beginning. I had plenty of time to figure it out. And in my one, you know, seeing my one or two patients a week, I give them great experiences. But it was slow. It is slower growth if you're going to go fee for service. They're not going to say, oh, let me go down there because he doesn't take my insurance. You have to give them something that they're not going to get elsewhere. And that is a great experience right? because people are not coming for great dentistry. They're coming for great experiences. They're coming to be taken care of and it's slower, but it works. Since then I have brought in other people in my practice 
and not any of my partners or associates have ever taken insurance. It's always been fee for service. There's nothing wrong with taking it. And I, I realize that some people think you have to, but you don't. What's sort of cool is that since you're one of the few people not taking it, there's not a lot of competition. And, you know, somebody once said to me, maybe I said it, I don't know. I don't, I, no matter what I say, I've stole from somebody else, you know, the feeling. I, there's no competition in a niche. If you provide super high quality care and give patients a lot of your time and attention and spend an hour with every new patient, they're not going to get that anywhere else. And during that one hour, you get to give the patient choices so they can make the best decision. Now, my daughter's a dentist and she went to school in San Antonio, which is a good dental school. It's a procedure type school. Okay, a lot of procedures. So she came out knowing a lot of procedures. So as she was doing the procedures, and I've given this lecture to the residents and at the Perio program with Brian Mealy there. And I said to her, I said, you have to give the patient choices and then always let the patient say they can decide. And then the first choice that you give them is to do nothing. All right. right. What do you mean? You don't have to do anything. And the patient will say, what do you mean? Not anything. And then the decision gets shifted to the patient. It's amazing how many of my patients say no one has ever spent this much time. I don't even spend that much time with the patient, but I'm present and I don't leave the room until they feel comfortable. I remember when I was um, in my teens, my father uh, had to go see a dermatologist. He had some cancer on his face. Dr. Ostreicher, he's still practicing. He's like 80. He's in my town. And his waiting room, he's by himself. There were like 30 people in his waiting room. So I go with the doctor. My dad's, I'm with my dad. And, and I walk into the room. And Dr. Ostreicher walks in and starts to examine my dad. And I'm thinking like, hurry up, man. You got 30 patients out there. I'm like 16. And he's tending all the time in the world like there was nobody else. And that's something that I wasn't like that when I first started. I thought I had to be busy all the time. I walk in a room with that new patient or a patient of record or a hygiene room or whatever. That's the only person in front of me. And they feel that human connection. And it doesn't take a lot to connect. Just make some eye contact, talk to them. And it's amazing. It's amazing how patients will respond to that. Yeah. Um, and I still do it today because that, that's the real fun of going to practice every day. Yeah. You know, walking in there and getting patients say, thank you. No one's ever treated me this way before. And, you know, most of the patients that come see me are, not, are coming from other dental practices, you know, not directly, but they've had bad experiences and they didn't go for a while. And then they come back and you get to take care of them. And that's what really turns me on is to improve the quality of my patients' lives. Yeah. To get them to smile, be happy, feel safe. Yeah, there, there's no doubt you're doing it. I want to have you back and, you know, talk about some of the other things that we brought up. I also have a couple other topics I want to, I could keep you on for like two more hours if you let me. Um, but uh, you are <laughs> up you. to a lot you're of, very kind. well, you're a great human being. And uh, Mike, I want you to talk about, you're up to a lot of stuff. You also have, I want people to get your book. Uh, well, first of all, before we talk about it, any, any last thoughts you have about treating people and not patients? Yeah. A couple. I, I do think it's it's something that if you haven't thought about, it's something to think about. I strongly rec recommend that people read my book, not because I make a lot of money on a book, because you don't make much money on the books, but I want to change. My goal is to change. I have a moonshot, and I learned this from Peter Diamandis, that we have a different moonshot you know, for our lives. And if you get up every day and your moon sh you, you look at your moonshot, you read it over, it's what you really want to accomplish that's going to impact the lives of a billion people. My moonshot is to improve the way doctors and all healthcare providers interact with the people that they serve. And that is by being hospitable, by being present. 
And almost everybody I talk to does not have a good experience with their dentist, with their doctor, with their healthcare provider, not even if they're seeing a PA or nurse, you know, and it's, I have been, I'm a patient. We'll talk about that another time. I've had a lot of dental work done. I have 23 crowns. I've lost nine teeth. I have two bad bike accidents. I've been on the other side and I've gotten great care as an adult, not as a kid, but as an adult, I did. And it means a lot. So I can, I can relate the patients. So I think it's important that people read the book or not. If you don't read, I don't know where else you're going to get this because not, not many people who are doctors are talking about this. And, you know, there's a series of videos that you can get online. They're not expensive, like $499. And it's three and a half hours of training for your team. There are 10 modules. And I recommend you put a, you watch one module a month. It comes with a workbook. So you get your team to know about this because you can't tell your team, like, let's treat patients better. That doesn't mean anything. You have to have right. some tools for it. I do have some very specific tools. And then I do a lot of programs. Uh, I also have programs on surgical things as well. I have a three-day course in just periodontics, uh, NYU, November 1st or 3rd. I do hands-on programs in my office. I do it through Zimmer. Uh, I teach soft tissue, bone grafting, and all that. And that that stuff is, is good. I still like doing that. Uh, but my true passion is really the impact. You hear my voice. When I talk about this subject, yeah, I can teach you how to do surgery. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've done surgery. You know, how many implants and bone grafts and extractions have I done? Thousands. It's no longer that exciting. But every patient, when I get to interact with a patient, that's always different. Yeah. It's always a different experience. So um, take a look at this stuff. Tell me what you think. And then I'm available. You go to my website. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can email me directly. Mike at sonicdmd.com. I'm sure you'll provide that stuff for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to highly encourage you guys to check it out. you got to read his book, Treating People, Not Patients. Now, here's how the podcast works. For those of you that are already listening, you know how this works. If you're not taking notes, don't worry. That's what we do. We take notes for you. So I don't care if you're listening on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever. You can flip up to the notes, the show notes, and you're going to see links to everything that we have mentioned during this podcast. You can check them out. I, I also highly encourage you to see Dr. Sonic speak. I think you're a phenomenal speaker. You should check out your programs um, and, uh, you know, make their make their practices better from top to bottom on all these things. So, Mike, so good to see you, brother. Thank you, Kirk. You're very hospitable. You're a great host <laughs> and a great guy. Hey, well, we got to have dinner again sometime soon. Uh, I don't know when that's going to be. We're going to make that happen, though. So we'll stick around while we say goodbye to everybody else. But thank you guys for listening to The Best Practices Show. If you enjoyed today, which I know you did, just do us a favor. Hit the share button. Share this with your friends. Keep sending us suggestions for things that you guys want to see. I'll line them up. And until we see you guys next time or you hear from us next time, keep watching or keep listening to The Best Practices Show. You guys enjoy your day. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.